Welcome to Boiling Point. They're cute, they're endangered, and they have the unsexiest voice of all. In some areas, they are too many, and in others, too few. Koalas are not just black and white, they're clearly 50 shades of grey. My guest is a koala researcher who knows how to track them down, or her fairy helpers do. Her koala detection dogs always find their target, or at least their poo. Listen in in just a moment. Welcome back to Boiling Point, your weekly science show on Eastside 89.7 FM. I'm your host Kat and my guest tonight is koala researcher Katrin Hohwieler. Thanks for joining me on the show, Katrin. Hi, thanks for having me. Katrin recently submitted her PhD at the University of the Sunshine Coast in Sippy Downs, north of Brisbane. Katrin, how does it feel to be finally free? Uh, um, it does feel good, but I think that the real challenge only starts now um, once I get my, once I review my work and uh, and uh, publish further. I think that's going to be another challenge. But uh, for now, for now, it felt quite good to be at least free of that deadline. <laughs> I I can imagine that. And you had your break. You went on a road trip, right? So you had a yes. bit of a nice time to enjoy. Yes, I did. Yeah, it was wonderful to see. Um, some of the most beautiful parts of Australia. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds really good. All right, let's have a bit of a chat about koalas. You study koalas in your PhD, so what is their current conservation status? Interesting question. Um, when it comes to koalas, their conservation status is actually not, not that simple because you might be aware that the situation for koalas is quite different um, between the uh, more northern states of Australia, so uh, Queensland and New South Wales, uh, in contrast to Victoria, where um, koalas are a lot more abundant than in Queensland. So here in Queensland, where, where I study, koalas are actually threatened um, and um, vulnerable. Um, their numbers have been declining quite consistently and continuingly since um, uh, over the last uh, decades and in the last three decades alone, um, they suspected about 80% of the population has declined. Um, whereas in in Victoria, koala populations have been managed for their overpopulation. So it's really interesting, and it makes it a bit difficult um, to give them a proper conservation status. Even though that, uh, even though now after the fires, where we have lost even more koalas, especially in New South Wales and Southeast Queensland. Um, there have been calls and studies that, that support that um, they should be uplisted by IUCN to endangered. This is really, I would say, an unusual situation that there's such a, yeah, two different conservation statuses within one country. How is this possible? It's, it's interesting and it's not, it's not really clear. Um, it is supposed or the, the idea is that potentially the pressures have been a lot quicker and faster up um, up along the coast in Queensland and New South Wales, um, where the development happened over the past few years a lot faster, whereas it, it uh, happened maybe a bit more gradually in the south. Um, but it's all it's all theories. And um, the other idea is so a lot of the um, high population numbers in Victoria, South Australia, are on islands where they are quite protected from their biggest threat, which are humans. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, down there, on the other hand, they are then threatened by consequences of inbreeding, for instance. So it's, it's 
um, it's not like they, they have a wonderful life down in the south. They also have other threats going on, um, which come from other sources. So what are the main threats in Queensland? In Queensland, the, the main threat that has been identified for koalas is um, habitat loss and habitat destruction and habitat fragmentation. So by uh, reducing their habitat, and their habitat unfortunately coincides with the beautiful spots where humans want to live so along the coastlines, um, and th that obviously makes it a bit more difficult for them. Um, so a lot of the habitat has been destroyed, and the thing is that um, koalas have a very specialized diet, so they, they require a certain set of um, eucalypt trees and, and, and uh, habitat. Yeah, they have very special habitat requirements, and if they are not there, if it, the habitat is too small, if they can't move, um, then that's going to be a problem. And obviously, with the fragmentation, populations have been chopped in uh, two or more parts, and um, the, at times, communication in terms of genetic exchange is, is difficult between these populations. That is the, the consequence of fragmentation, where you then have smaller populations and smaller populations, and um, they by themselves don't have the variety that they need. And, and other threats, is, so this is the, the main identified threat, but then there are heaps more other threats. And um, they, they, are don't, they are standalone threats, but also they all work together and make it even more difficult. So in Queensland, what is particularly problematic is the chlamydia infection. Um, a lot of koalas, when you when you go out of nature, you, you might see that they have signs of what we call wet bottom or um, conjunctivitis. So um, it's a really nasty disease that koalas get through sexual transmission and they often suffer a lot and um, they, they might get go infertile or they might even die from it and uh, so that is a huge threat in in queensland and uh, other threats are also including wild dog attacks feral dog attacks but also um, house dog like pet attacks um, which happen unfortunately quite a lot and then obviously one of the bigger threats is as well the car accidents on the road um, which have been a lot more frequent in the last 30 years because the traffic on our roads increases so much. And lastly, I would say climate change is one of the lingering ones where we, as of yet, don't really understand how it will impact the koalas. So when you say there are plenty in Victoria and really not that many in Queensland, why can't we just relocate some from Victoria and bring them up there? Great question. It would, it would sound so wonderful and, and so like such a great idea. It's unfortunately not that simple. And the main reason probably being that koalas are so specialized to their diet and their habitat that they live in and the habitat that they are born in. Because it, it's what, what, we, what we know now is that their gut microbiome is very, very specialized to a certain set of plants and uh, they get the bacteria to deal with that certain set of plants by, from their mother um, at a certain stage in their life. When they don't have, when they're not adapted to the plants, they cannot really digest them. So if you take a koala from the south and put, put them in the north, um, they might not be able to, to digest any of the plants that are available or they might not even eat them. Mm. Um, and it, it is very localized what their favorite trees are. So that, that might be a 
a problem. There are ways around it and uh, researchers are thinking about it. But then um, if anyone has ever been in South Australia and seen koala there and compared it to a Queensland koala, you can also see that they are quite different, even though they are genetically not. Is it right that the Victorian koalas are bigger? They are correctly? bigger. So um, interestingly, I've I've just been to Victoria myself to um, see them, and I went to the great along the Great Ocean Road in Cape Otway, and was absolutely amazed by how many koalas um, you can see there, and they just run around everywhere. They are a lot bigger. They have the fluffy ears. They have a lot more fur. So just visually, you would think that they that the koalas down there and the koalas up here are subspecies, but genetically, it hasn't been verified. Oh, okay, so I guess it's not as extreme, but I'm just picturing a polar bear being put into a tropical region, and I guess yeah. you wouldn't enjoy that either. So. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, that 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 would be one assumption for sure when you just look at them that they might um, have a bit of a trouble adjusting to the climate change as well. Yeah, oh, for sure. And I'm sure you've heard those stories and know those stories probably even better than I do. But I found it quite impressive and sad, of course, when I heard about it um, a few years ago for the first time that apparently in Victoria, some areas are so dense, especially I think around Cape Odway, that um, koalas would even starve. Maybe that's just a myth, but because no. all the leaves are eaten and <sighs> they sit on their tree and they're like, no, I'm not moving. I'd rather starve. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah it, it is about. actually, it is actually actually true it's not a myth um that has definitely occurred in i'm not sure when exactly um in the 2000, early 2000s mid 2000s where the population had to be controlled by humans through controlling the birth rate and by at times sterilizing koalas because there were just too many and they would eat their own food so until there was nothing left and uh, so they had to do some population management at that point Because, yeah, you don't want to have koalas starving. I do think that the situation has improved. So before we talked about too many koalas there, too few here, you actually mentioned the issue of the fragmentation of habitat for the koalas and the problem that the genetic variety isn't maintained the smaller the populations get. What is the issue about that? Why is it a problem if you have those, say, little um, isolated koala villages every every now and then? Like, why why can't they thrive in a situation like that? So genetic Variation, genetic variety, um, is very important for any species to adapt to a changing environment. So the more variation you have, the more likely it is that one of those variations is suitable for a, a different kind of environment. And when you have um, very small populations, the chance that they that, that they have more inbreeding events so, um, is is a lot higher. And if you have more inbreeding events, um, what happens with inbreeding is that you reduce genetic variation because you, you breed with something similar. We know that that is not, not good, and that's also true for any animal. And by being fragmented and, and cut off from other populations, it's also really difficult um, to get new material in. So normally you have migration between populations and genetic exchange or new genes coming in from, from other populations. And if uh, populations are isolated and small, um, they run a very high risk of um, experiencing extirpation, so the local extinction of koala populations. And we have some predictions along the um, southeast Queensland populations and northern New South Wales 
that there are some populations already so um, small and and increasingly under pressure um, that they might go extinct within the next 30 years or so. And so it, it is a real problem um, with the genetic variation. And also what we know is, especially with inbreeding events, that obviously diseases are frequently more occurring frequently more often in general that their health declines and that their fertility declines. We are now getting closer and closer um, to your actual research project you did your PhD on. But before we get into this more, let's have a quick break. And you picked a song for us um, called, well, we talked about the the proper pronunciation of this song before, something called Blue Comanche by Westerman. And um, Katrin, what is, uh, give us a quick overview. What, what is the song about? Um, I'm also not sure how it's pronounced, but um, it is definitely a song that I listened to a lot uh, over the past year. It has a bit of a nostalgic feeling about um, the nature that we have lost. At least that is what the art, the, the artist's intention was. I think you have to read between the lines of the lyrics, but uh, it, it's definitely a song to lean back and, and think Imagine yourself in some sort of national park. Let's listen to Blue Comanche by Westerman. Turn back around. Turn back around, go 
That was Blue Comanche by Westerman. Welcome back to Boiling Point. I'm chatting to Katrin Hohwieler, who is a PhD candidate and very soon to be PhD at the University of the Sunshine Coast. Katrin, we talked about um, genetic fragmentation and how this is a really big problem for koala populations. Tell us a bit more. What is your PhD actually about and what did you find? So um, what I did in my PhD is a bit different to other koala studies. I used non-invasively collected samples to get genetic material from the koalas. So, so we collected the poo of the koalas. Um, so we didn't have to disturb them, which was quite a new thing and has a lot more applied conservation to it than actually catching the animal. And we could get DNA from the koala scat. And with the DNA, we then investigated how connected are populations. But also we had some time scales or sampled across time scales. And we could, we could see how actually this kind of fragmentation and the reduced population size is reflected in the genetics because we assumed that it would increase the genetic variation. And we wanted to have a look if we can actually prove it. And we did find that the, the genetic variation has decreased dr dramatically, I guess, together with the population size as well. We found, found this proof through the non-invasive samples, and uh, we are still doing further investigations to see how the connectivity of the koalas plays a role in actually preventing genetic erosion and try to think about ideas of how we can, in the future, ensure that koala populations stay connected and reconnect populations that used to be connected. Do you have any ideas yet? What, what can be done about that? It depends a bit. And it, the interesting thing is that a lot of management of species happens on a local council area or local government area. The situation is very different from area to area. So it has to be assessed individually. And then you can do really targeted kind of solution ideas, such as, for instance, in, in one of the areas where we studied a lot, the, the Redland City Council in southeast Queensland, um, which is part of the Koala Coast. We know that there are um, pretty big issues with traffic and so and, and we could identify with the genetics where the traffic might have the biggest impact on the connectivity of the koalas. And we are now thinking of how we can ease the traffic for the koalas or improve their safe migration across such as green bridges, underpasses. That's all um, up to debate now, um, but we've done the background research and um, we can only try to find solutions from here. Is it a bit of a problem when you think about potential solutions that, well, at least there's some rumor that koalas are made, potentially not the brightest creatures on the planet? <laughs> well, I do sometimes wonder, but I don't want to judge their intelligence. I think that they are just busy with digesting and sleeping. So I think they're just too occupied to think about anything else. Um, That's true. The, the, <laughs> they're just too the, high from their from their eucalypts, right? So not well, their fault. kind of, yeah. I guess I don't want to judge them when we say that they are not the smartest when they cross the roads and stuff. It's also caused by us because we chop their habitat in half. Obviously, they have to cross the road. Climate is increasing. It's getting hotter and hotter. They have to look for water all of a sudden. Of course, they're going to be on the road. We also kind of determine their behavior. That's very true. No, I definitely didn't want to. Um, <laughs> <It's awesome>. no, <laughs> that's right. No, no I, I would never do that. So cute. Okay. <laughs> so you had, um, so you mentioned that you had a um, like a non-invasive approach, which was which is always great. But you had very busy helpers to help you find the poo. Who helped you with that? 
Now, this is the favorite part of the whole research. <laughs> we trained some detection dogs. We, we have multiple detect detection dogs now that can sniff the poo for us. That was a new approach for koala conservation. And my supervisor did some research um, before I started my PhD and found that with koala detection dogs, the um, accuracy is a lot higher and the speed obviously is a lot higher because detection dogs can sniff out a koala poo within no time. They are 16 times faster than humans to actually find a koala scat, and they are 150 times more accurate to do so. So whenever humans go out and look for koalas, most of the times we would, or often we would miss them, whereas um, detection dogs make sure that we don't miss them. So that is so cool with the koala dogs. I still don't think that's the best part. I think the koalas are still the best part of your project. <laughs> But anyway, in the eye of the beholder. Um, so how many koala dogs do you have in your group and um, how do you train them? Currently we have five dogs, mainly because they are all trained on something slightly different. So we have two detection dogs that are that we call the habitat detection dogs who are trained on koala to find koala scats that are of any age and any size um then we have two genetic detection dogs so they they are trained to only indicate on very very fresh scats and then we have one detection dog that is bare that looks for live koala so he can he's trained on the fur of koalas and and the smell of koalas and he can actually track them along the ground and then point out in the tree where they are all of our detection dogs are rescue dogs and um, that is a bit big part of our philosophy as the detection dogs for conservation we train them it's a, the training is relatively easy because we what we look for in these dogs is that they're absolutely completely crazy in their head um <laughs> that sounds so, very promising <laughs> yeah so basically all of our dogs are absolutely bananas about balls there, there's nothing else they want in life but the ball they just want to play all day that makes it very easy to train them anything they would do anything for you so they can get the ball so that is their reward actually when they find the scat in the field we'll give them the ball and, and we have a ball play with them for a couple of minutes and then we continue on because they're so obsessed with that the training of getting them to to actually show us where the scats are is relatively straightforward it doesn't necessarily take too long because they're rescue dogs sometimes there's a bit of maintenance to do there because they sometimes have had quite difficult backgrounds And you actually live with one of these detection dogs. What is it like to, to live with one? <laughs> yeah, um, for the last three years now, I've been living with Billie Jean. Um, she's the, the, one of the genetic detection dogs that I've been working with, obviously, because I was looking for genetic samples. And um, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty good. I mean, they're high energy, so they, they have days off where they're not in the field and then they still demand that you play with them all the time. <laughs> Um, but it, it's pretty good. I often take them, or we often have them all in the office on rainy days when we when we don't go out or when we have a break between projects. They just hang out in the office all together. They love hanging out with each other and um, they have, having a good time. And I, I just love being, they're so smart and they're, they're a very valuable part of the team. And here in my in my share house, also a valuable part of, of the family. <laughs> <laughs> That sounds like really fun. Do you sometimes use them to like just to keep them entertained to check out your neighborhood if there are any koalas <laughs> around? Well, not not officially. We, we often do some training. I always have some koala um, poo frozen around somewhere for some training and we t we have to do a lot of uh you know fitness programs so we take them for beach runs and take them jogging and things like that we don't we don't really take them into the field because clearly because it should always be scheduled yeah oh that sounds like <laughs> great fun um to, yeah to to live with them really um, it is 
So, they keep us fit too. <laughs> I can imagine. Um, yes, yeah, so unfortunately, we have to slowly wrap up. But tell us, what can... Um, so obviously, this whole area of like koala conservation is quite emotional for a lot of people. And after all, oh. there are a quite enigmatic species in Australia. So oh. what would you tell people? What can... Yeah, what can individuals... Uh, what can, can the normal person on the street do to help oh. with koala conservation? Great question. So there are a couple of things everyone can do. One of them is obviously um, if you live in a in an urban area with koalas or, or generally in an area with koalas, driving slow on the road, especially during dusk and dawn and at night is really important. It really can save lives. And also if you have koalas in your neighborhood, there's surely a local community that looks after them. You can always talk to them and, and see what you can do. Then if there are periods of really hot and dry weather, it's always good to put some water out in the garden and on, a, on maybe like a bit of a higher stool or something for koalas and wildlife in general. And if you have a pool to have a wildlife escape plan for the pool, for instance, because there are always pool incidents with koalas where they drown, unfortunately, because they can't get out. Oh, they can't um, even swim. Oh, stop it. <laughs> well, they, they, they can swim, but I'm, I'm not sure. Sometimes it doesn't really work. The other thing that you can do is obviously, if you have a property with habitat, with, with eucalypt trees, and, and you live in a, in a koala area, you can always um, try to conserve what you have on your property or, or rehabilitate the property or help others to re rehabilitate with like land for wildlife programs and things like that. You can also volunteer to help others to rehabilitate. And as a last thing, I guess, if you if you see a koala, it's always great to put it, or any species really, to put it up in Atlas of Living Australia. That's ala.com.au and pin where you saw it. And that's really good citizen science work right there. And we can all use it to get a better understanding of how the distribution is developing. Yeah, that's awesome. I will definitely put the, that link into our post on Facebook in our group so people yep. can check that out. Um, yep. Yeah, thanks so much, Katrin, for being my guest tonight on the show. Thank you so much for having me. That was uh, really fun to talk to you. <laughs> yeah, it was really fun to yeah, learn about the koalas and the detection dogs and about your work. Thanks so much for listening to Boiling Point, everyone. We will be back with a fresh new science-related episode next week. But before we let you go, Katrin picked another song for us. And this time it's not too thought-provoking. It's just nice and relaxing. Uh, Katrin, what is the last song you chose for us? The last song is called uh, Texas Sun and I used to listen to it when I drove to fieldwork and back because it's a really nice song to listen to in the car and just relax to. That sounds great. Um, yeah, thanks again for listening and um, let's listening to Texas Sun. Bye for now.
Say you wanna hit the highway while the engine roars. Well, come on, roll with me till the sun goes down. The Texas sun. Caressing you from Fort Worth to Amarillo well, Come on, roll with me to the sun dips low Texas sun Texas sun, oh girl When I'm far from home, the cold winds blow. Stuck down somewhere, folks I don't. Cause you keep me nice and you keep me warm. Wanna feel you warm me, can't wait to get back there again. Texas sun. Yeah. Uh-huh. 